Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 6. We're going to be starting in verse 12 today, Luke 6, verse 12. We're working our way through this entire gospel, pursuing rock-solid truth to live by. We're going to spend a few weeks now in a mini-series, if I could call it that, a mini-series within the series, and I've titled this, Our Calling. Our Calling. This addresses the, the small matter of how should we live this life? How should we spend the few years that God gives us before eternity strikes? We're going to work our way through the calling of the 12 apostles this morning and and the following beatitudes, or as you know, blessings. These are the blessings that Jesus taught all those who desire to follow Him. The more I study these, these verses, the more my faith and way of thinking are challenged. You are going to see what I am talking about this morning. Jesus' teachings in these verses go so strongly against my natural instincts. Matter of fact, I would say that apart from divine intervention, these points make very little to no sense at all. Points like love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Be glad and leap for joy, the text says, we're going to look at today, when people hate you for being a Christian and living it out. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you. Even after 42 years of being a Christian, these truths are not the first to run through my mind when I hit hard times, but I want them to. They should. I trust that you're with me on this because if we get this right There are divine and eternal blessings and rewards that are promised to us. But if we get this wrong, there are woes, the text is going to say. There are dreadful sorrows in store for us. That's why I've titled part one in this short series, Blessings or Curses. But before we dive into this primary topic, let's look briefly at the context just prior to these Beatitudes. Follow along as I read, beginning in verse 12, Luke 6, verse 12. It says, it, it was at this time that he, speaking of Jesus, went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place, and there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon. I'll just interject. This is the bulk of western Israel and even north beyond Israel's border, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured And all the people were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them all. Can you imagine such a scene? 
Now, we're not going to dwell long on this portion of the text, but we cannot pass up verse 12. And Luke's record, which I believe of all the the gospel writers, he's the only one that uh, noted this at this point. We can't pass up verse 12 in, in Luke's record that Jesus prayed all night before making this momentous decision as to his apostles and doing a day of very serious ministry. Before Jesus called these specific 12 disciples who would become his apostles, so they're not just followers, they're not just learners, they are his special messengers, chosen messengers. And before Jesus engaged with this massive crowd, which I have to assume is is thousands of people, they have come from all over Israel, the text says. They are thronging about him. Everyone is pressing in and trying to touch him because power and healing were literally oozing out of him, you could say. But before Jesus engaged in this incredible day of ministry, he spent the whole night in prayer. Now, if you value sleep like me, then this verse catches your attention. We readily learn that Jesus valued prayer more than even vital rest. Again, this goes against every logical fiber in my brain. Surely I need a good night of rest before I'm going to have a long day of ministry. Thinking back a few weeks with me, we see here Jesus once again prioritizing the spiritual over the physical. That takes faith. Someone shared in our salt group, our small group, about three weeks back, that her husband spoke up at work when confronted with a moral, physical, gender matter. He spoke up in love for Christ and in love for that person, in support of what the Bible teaches, and he gave them the gospel. Now, you don't have to think about that twice to realize he risked his entire job in those few minutes. That is prioritizing the spiritual over the physical. It goes against every natural, protective, providing instinct in our brain. But it aligns very well with God's calling for believers to speak the truth in love as he leads. But we all know that praying and Prioritizing the spiritual over the physical is all good and dandy until it might cost us something, right? Like much-needed rest or other very important things like our, our, our job or whatever it might be. Uh, it's, it's, good and it's good until it's not convenient. At that point, we have to understand that our faith is then measured, like my friend on the Seattle side who, works, who's, who's worked at Microsoft for ages, and I heard just three days ago that he just got fired over the same matter I referenced a minute ago. He just couldn't violate his conscience and God's word, and he lost his job for it on the spot. But Jesus says he gained something. We're going to study that this morning. My church family, we had better know what the word says or we're not going to know how to respond 
when the testing of our faith comes. And it's not just coming, it has come. We understand this. But praise the Lord, His Word gives the light and the courage we are going to need in that day. Now, regarding the selection of the 12 apostles, we're not going to dive deep into this study here for the sake of time. But if you'd like, you can, you can do some research on the 12. You will find a number of fascinating facts about these 12 men in your study Bibles or in online searches. We are going to learn about these men as we go through the Gospel of Luke. But suffice it to say for today that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he handpicked, as a matter of prayer, this ragtag team of 12 men and called them to follow him and to be his special messengers. They're going to proclaim his gospel. And in verse 17, we note that the group of disciples extends well beyond these 12, though. There is now a large crowd of disciples present, as well as people who just want to be healed. This is more likely a mob, frantically trying to get the touch of a lifetime. I mean, who wouldn't? If only they knew that Jesus had so much more to offer them. Some of them would learn this. It's to this massive group, this multitude, that Jesus now gives some of his most practical teaching, commonly called the Beatitudes, the blessings. Now, you can, you can read a similar and an even extended set of Beatitudes in Matthew, what chapters? Chapter 5, 6, 7, many of you are very familiar with his, those uh, well-known texts there. Now, there is some debate as to whether Luke and Matthew are both speaking of the same event when they record these Beatitudes. It's possible that Jesus taught similar truths on two different occasions, but it matters little whether these are one and the same because we know they are both true. Both accounts are completely true. They both shed spiritual light on this earthly life. And I'm going to largely focus on the Luke text Without get pulling in Matthew at every possible opportunity, the Luke text is capable of standing on its own. But as time allows, we will glean a little from Matthew as well. But before we read this text, I want to make sure that we're also all very well prepared to let the Bible define the word blessing. You know what I mean? Be warned. The biblical definition of blessing is not a guaranteed big home, steady job, good health, lots of friends, and pain-free, suffering-free living. God may provide in gracious and undeserved temporal ways, but that's not the gold standard for the truly blessed life in God's economy. We're going to see this as we study the Scriptures. And I very much wanted to read through the entire set of Beatitudes, verse 20 to 49, but time just does not allow. So I, I encourage you to take time this week to read through verses 20 to 49. See the breadth of the text. See the fuller picture that Jesus was trying to teach in one sweep here. Then you will find greater meaning in its parts as we study our way through. So with that said, follow along as I read verses 20 to 26 for this morning. It says, in turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. 
Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. My church family, this text describes the true follower of Christ. Is this our definition? Is this our pursuit? You see, this is both a theological and practical definition of the good life. Again, my mind doesn't go there, though. But I want it to, because Scripture does. This is the way we are to increasingly think and live. This is our calling. Now, as you can see, this text comes in two parts, blessings and woes. We have positives and negatives, do's and don'ts. The text is very clear, but it really goes against our instinct. Remember, these instructions are only valid, they are only profitable because God works miraculously in them. You follow me on that? Apart from the divine, we are more than likely better off just ignoring this text and quote-unquote fending for ourselves the best we can. Like the woeful, godless, self-sufficient person reasons in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What purposeless and what a hopeless vision for living. How much better the eternal compass that God sets for us in texts like this that we're reading today. So let's focus on the first half of our text for today, verses 20 to 23. Here we have four pairs of negatives and positive circumstances. These come in the context of now and later, temporal and eternal. We have to recognize, though, these are very real-life circumstances. These affect our today and our tomorrow and our forever. And we had better pay attention because this is the way life works for the disciples of Jesus Christ. And if we don't understand how life works, how our calling works, we are going to be disappointed and disillusioned. Such helpless wandering in life is unnecessary. But sometimes we do struggle because we all still have much to learn. That's why we go back to the Word. It's why we go back to texts like this so that we can see the light and so we can see our path and not stumble. We've already noted that Jesus is speaking to his disciples, his followers. 
And yes, we can be a follower and not be following well. Yes, we can be a soldier and not be fighting well, an athlete and not be running our hardest. So I just want to say from the get-go here, wherever this scripture finds you and me, let us never give up. Always open the word and get back on the path. Get back in the fight. Pick up the pace all by God's grace so that we can live more fully in these blessings that are both now and to come. And isn't it interesting that Jesus is not calling the disciples to anything he has not already done? Jesus made himself poor. Philippians 2. He wept. He hungered. We studied this just a few weeks ago, prior, a few ch- prior, uh, uh, ch- uh, chapters prior, where Jesus fasted for 40 days. It says he hungered. We also see that he chose gladness through it all, true gladness, as we're going to study in a minute. Now, there was a key phrase at the end of verse 22. Did you catch it? Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you, meaning they exclude you, they kick you out, and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. There's the key phrase. For Christ's sake, for Christ's benefit, for the advancement of the gospel. We have to understand that that condition, that conditional clause runs backward through all four blessings. We could read them this way. Blessed are you who are poor for Christ's sake. Blessed are you who hunger for Christ's sake. Blessed are you who weep for his sake. Blessed are you when men hate you, ostracize you, insult you, and scorn your name as evil for Christ's sake. I make this point because these four blessings are only valid when we are following Christ. Make no mistake, if a person is poor and not following Jesus, then they're just poor and they have no hope of inheriting the kingdom of God. If they're hungry and not following Jesus, they are not going to be satisfied. They are likely going to get hungrier. If a person is weeping but not following Jesus, then there is no hope of them ever climbing out of their truest sorrow and depression. Because only Christ can lead a a person out of that. If they are not liked by people and they are not following Christ, then there's nothing to rejoice about in that. To be sure, these hardships can come as a result of things like foolishness and laziness. These things can come as the result of fear and sin and so on. There is no blessing and no reward in those cases. Jesus is talking here about holy suffering. Isn't that quite a concept? He is talking about holy suffering and sacrifice, willing sacrifice for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the gospel. Because when we follow the miracle-working Son of God as a matter of faith and love, the divine begins to happen. He 
takes over the path of our life for good. I know that there are many of you, you here today who would attest to this. That at some point, you opened the word, you heard the scriptures, you believed, you repented of sin, and God just took over your life. He miraculously began to change things outside of you, and even more so, he began to miraculously change things inside of you. Many here would attest to this, I'm sure. It's because God not only leads us, he also, when we follow, he begins to protect and provide as well along the way. He transforms, he empowers, he blessedly accomplishes his good and perfect will in us when we live for his sake. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. But there's a conditional clause, right? For those who love him and are called according to his purposes, it's his purposes that are revealed in the Beatitudes. It is his way. Now, it's also important for us to note that this text does not imply that we should suffer just, quote-unquote, for the sake of suffering. As if by simply bringing these harsh conditions upon ourselves, we somehow obtain the compassionate favor of God, or somehow we impress Him. Now, this text is more a position of, if these come upon you, on account of living for Christ, know that you are and will be blessed. Jesus is saying, and hear me on this, don't run from these things. My natural instincts run from the four things in this, this text. Yours do too. But Jesus is saying, don't run from these things. The Apostle Paul emphatically stated, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will what? will suffer persecution. That's 2 Timothy 3.12. 3, uh, 3, Christian friend, if you and I are in no way suffering for Christ, then we have very strong reason to question whether we are living godly in Christ Jesus. These are hard but good, right, godly concepts truths to be washed by living for Christ and the proclamation of the gospel will cost us many of the comforts and pleasures and securities of this world. When Jesus said to pick up our cross, when he said to deny ourselves and to follow him, we have to understand that he was not calling us to pleasantries. It was the calling to die to self for Christ in trusting Him. And along the way, whether we are entrusted by God with little or much, it is all to be for Christ's sake. There's the beauty in it. McDonald says this in his commentary. The four blessings describe the ideal person in the kingdom of God. I mean, I, just, I read that and I just had to sit back. I just don't think of this as the ideal life. But he says the, the four blessings here describe the ideal person in the kingdom of God, the one who lives sacrificially, 
austerely, soberly, and enduringly. Those are very challenging words to my faith. Now you can see that so far, I've interpreted this Lucan text on its own grounds, specifically apart from the Matthew text, the Matthew Beatitudes. I've interpreted these verses as they are written, being careful not to over-spiritualize them. Now, I have many reasons to believe that the text is referring to our physical circumstances in these four points. For example, to say the first point is not referring to physical poverty, it's referring to spiritual poverty, our humility and our acknowledged neediness before God. Now, that may be true, But how do we equally and consistently then apply that interpretation to verse 22? Think about this with me. Would we also say, that's not referring to verbal and relational hatred and insults. It's referring to spiritual hatred and spiritual ostracizing. People will still be your friends and speak well of you. Of course, that makes absolutely no sense. Jesus is talking about real, audible words, real relationships, real rejections and insults right now. So I caution us in over-spiritualizing these points because the text didn't. And this physical interpretation is, is actually quite consistent with the rest of Scripture. The apostles, think about them, they suffered Poverty and hunger and tears and hatred on account of the Son of Man, Son of God. And Scripture warns us to be prepared for the same should it come our way, and it should. Again, we're not talking about monasticism or self-abusive levels of asceticism, that is, self-inflicted pain or restraint in hopes of some spiritual gain or the favor of God. No, we're talking about the tangible costs that may be and likely will be inflicted upon us by others and allowed by God because we choose by grace to live sacrificially for Christ in the proclamation of the gospel. Now, all that said about the physical interpretation and application of this text, we should also take into account that Jesus expounded upon these truths in Matthew 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus did say in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit. He did say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And so, yes, there is biblical warrant to take these physical terms and physical applications and to apply them to the spiritual as well. We should indeed see ourselves as poor and in desperate need of the holiness and righteousness of Christ, both now in our sanctification and eternally in our salvation. Yes, we should hunger and thirst after righteousness. We should crave the mind and will of God. 
we should be starving for spiritual truths and endeavors because these, there are divine blessings that supersede the temporal costs of living on account of the Son of Man, the gospel. So here's our primary point of application. I encourage you to take time now, but especially throughout the week, to evaluate how you are physically and spiritually living out what Jesus just talked about in the Beatitudes so far. For example, here's a list on the screen that you can use if you like. By no means is it exhaustive. By no means should it be used in a pharisaical way, as in, look at all the things I'm doing for God. That's not the intent. It should be used to help us to evaluate the reality of our spiritual growth in these areas that Jesus is very specifically teaching on. I know there's going to be a lot of info here. Don't feel like you have to write it all down. I trust that just at least reading it helps us cement the ideas. You might want to take a picture of it real quick when the screen's full. But let me give an example. On point number one here of physical poverty, list several ways that you joyfully sacrifice temporal things for Christ's sake and for the gospel's sake. You'll note, you'll note I'm going to include the gospel every single time because that's the reality of Christ for us in this life. List several ways that you joyfully sacrifice. That means it really, really costs temporal things for Christ's sake and for the gospel. Perhaps this could occur in sacrificing some hobby time for more ministry time. Perhaps it's in our tithes and offerings. Perhaps we have intentionally chosen a lesser pay grade or retirement so we can spend more time in pure gospel efforts. I know people who have done this. There's lots of potential application here, but as the Lord leads. Now on the corresponding point, you can see that these are coming in pairs. Number two is spiritual poverty. List several ways that you humbly acknowledge and demonstrate your spiritual neediness before God and people. Perhaps it's through meaningful confession each day in our own quiet time. Perhaps it's the willingness to humbly and sincerely listen to the counsel of others. And of course, if you can't think of several ways you're doing this, just think of as many as you can, and then identify ways that you could and should continue to grow in these. Again, this is the blessed life that we are talking about in these points. Look at point number three, on physical hunger. List several ways you, sa- you willingly sacrifice physical necessities for spiritual nourishment. I mean, this is really where the ru- rubber begins to meet the road in Christian living. This could be as simple as coming to church on Sunday, even though we had to work very late on Saturday night. I can't tell you how much it blesses my soul. I know there are people who show up here on Sunday morning straight from their all-night shift of work. Perhaps this is evidenced by the willingness to skip breakfast if that's what it takes to get our Bible time in on a certain day. Again, 
There are countless ways to demonstrate these things as a matter of loving faith and devotion to God. What about point four, spiritual hunger? List several ways you crave spiritual truth and endeavors. That may be watching less TV and reading more Christian books. It may be squeezing in every possible Bible study or ministry opportunity we can, whether that be in, in, at work, whether it be at school, with friendships, whether it be in or outside the walls of this building. And of course, we do this not at the expense of our own family, not at the expense of our own personal time with God, but in addition to it, we have to remember there is a reason God called us to labor in the harvest. He said nothing about coming along for the ride. What about point number five, physical weeping? List several ways you willingly suffer emotional sorrow and stress for Christ, for the gospel's sake. Number six, spiritual weeping. List several ways that you welcome spiritual burdens into your life for Christ and the gospel's sake. We're talking about weeping over sin, weeping over the lost, weeping over the world's need for holiness. I know firsthand that I tend to not want to see people's needs. I mean, I hate to acknowledge this as a pastor, but I tend to want to not see the needs because when I see them, it gives me a sense of obligation and responsibility if I'm available. One of the marks of a sincere and growing believer is their eager willingness to get their hands very dirty in the work of the gospel. Because God and people are just plain old worth it. We adopt the burdens that Jesus cared for. We take his yoke upon us. Praise the Lord, he makes it light, though, when we follow him, doesn't he? What about number seven, physical hatred? List several ways that you willingly endure hatred, ostracization, insults, and scorned reputation for Christ and the gospel's sake. Maybe it's with family. I know it is for a number of you. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's at school that we willingly endure scorn or insults. Maybe it's among friends. Heaven forbid, maybe it even happens in the church. We are all saved sinners. That's no excuse, just a reminder. Again, we are not seeking persecutions. Matter of fact, as one brother, brother shared earlier today, we're also commanded to to do everything possible to strive to live at peace with all men. We're not looking for trouble, but we're also not fleeing persecution and trouble and sacrifice when they unavoidably occur for Christ's sake. Number eight, last one on the list, spiritual hatred. List several ways that you spiritually exercise and prepare for persecution for Christ and the gospel's sake. I have no doubt that my brother who had this difficult conversation at work was praying and preparing an answer 
not a condemnation, not a judgment, but an answer and a reason for the hope that lies within him. We have to prepare and spiritually exercise to be ready for persecution. It always comes for those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. Much more can be said and explored and personalized on each of these points, but you get the idea. But we have to ask, why would anyone willingly and knowingly and even joyfully choose this path in life? It's because they've read and believed the rest of the text. For yours is the kingdom of God. For you shall be satisfied. You shall laugh. Your reward is great in heaven, Jesus said. Verse 23 says, Be glad in that day and leap for joy. Friends, we will know that we are well on this path, not when we woefully and begrudgingly sacrifice and allow hardships into our life for Christ's sake, but when we do it spiritually leaping and shouting for joy. If you see that kind of servant's heart in someone here in this church family, praise God for them and follow them as they follow Christ. Again, though, to be sure, in no way is Jesus saying, stop weeping and start laughing when your family ostracizes you. In no way is he saying, laugh when you can't even pay your bills on my account. He's not saying, pretend like there is no pain. Those are ridiculous interpretations. Jesus himself wept tears for us. But as Hebrews 12, 2 says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. There's such an incredible principle at play there. The pain of the cross and the weight of the shame were very, very real for the Son of God. But Jesus saw the end game. He saw the prize. He saw the promised joy. And it says that's what his eyes were fixed upon. That's the prize that was set before him. You see, I fear that too often we set the cross and the shame before ourselves. And that's what our eyes are fixed upon. We're focused on the trial. We're focused on the suffering, the realities. But sadly, that's what begins to drive our emotions and our thinking and our decisions and our motivation or lack thereof. When what we need to do is flip our focus, we got to flip it around and put it on the promise, the reward, and the joy, as the text says. We choose joy not in circumstances, but in our Savior Himself. In faith, we find joy in Him and His promised reward. I want you to think big picture with me. What more does God have to offer? to persuade us to more and more deny self and pick up our cross and embrace, if he calls us to it, poverty, hunger, weeping, and hatred. Again, when he ordains them for his sake and for the advancement of the gospel, what more does God have to offer? 
when he already offers his entire kingdom. Sometimes we read over these phrases so fast, they just don't impact us like they should. For yours is the kingdom of God. He offers true and eternal satisfaction, true and eternal joy. He already offered his only son. Why do we have faith in the promised offerings of God? It's because he already offered the best he could. He already did it. Jesus said the reward is great and it is waiting for us in heaven forever. Do you believe this? It takes faith to believe this. It takes the work of grace to do this. That's why we open the Word of God every Sunday, hopefully every day, and we expose ourselves to the truth statements, commands, and promised rewards of Scripture. It's why we behold the author, God himself, so our hearts can be further persuaded that he is worthy. He is trustworthy. The end of verse 23 gives us this testimony regarding persecution. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. Don't be surprised when you suffer for Christ's sake. It's part of our calling. Those who faithfully proclaimed the Lord before us experienced the same. But for sure, we must also not fail to anticipate the reward just like Jesus is teaching here and just like the prophets of old did. The heroes of faith, quote unquote, Hebrews 11, right? Let's close, close quickly here with the contrasting truth statements that Jesus gave in the following verses, 24 to 26. But woe to you who are rich, for you're receiving your comfort in full. And the word, word woe is such a strong cautionary word. How dreadfully sorry. Be severely warned. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Again, to be clear, there is no sin in riches and in being well-fed or laughing or, or good reputation in and of themselves. Think about this. We've got to balance the Scriptures. The Scriptures speak well in their entirety. Even the Apostle Paul said, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. He said, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need, Philippians 4.12. So it's not the material matter that really matters. All of these woes here in Luke 6 simply imply a self-centered, self-gratifying, self-sufficient work at the expense of Christ and the gospel versus for the sake of Christ and the gospel. We get the point. But what a cunning comparison we find at the end right here. On the one hand, don't be surprised if you suffer for Christ. So did God's prophets, his spokespersons. 
And similarly, don't be surprised if you choose self over Christ and everyone loves you, you feel happy, you're well-fed, and you are rich in the things of this world. That's exactly how it was for the false prophets who went before you. The question is, which prophets will you and I learn from? Whose example will we follow? Will we choose blessings or curses? By the grace of God and for the sake of Christ, let's choose the sacrifice that leads to the heavenly blessings, the blessings that come to those who lovingly sacrifice for the one who sacrificed himself for us. This is the blessed life. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you gave your all and you call us to do the same. All I can say is we got the good end of that deal. Lord, you have been so good. Your word is true. Even when it's hard to hear and it goes against our natural impulse and our instincts, Lord, you have promised that you are leading us in the right way, the truth, and there is life to be found. Thank you, Lord. I pray that there, if there is even one or two or three here who are not already followers of Christ, believers, children of God, Christians, who, have, who know they have been forgiven and redeemed, bought back by God. Lord, I pray that they would repent of sin and believe in you, that they would open your word and surrender to it. Oh, what a joyful, blessed surrender that is. Lord, for those of us who know we are children of God, we know that you have called us. Lord, help us to know well the actual calling, that you call us to let go of the things we cling to as a matter of self-sufficiency, self-security, self-comfort. You ask us to simply trust you. And whether you entrust us with little or much, may it all be used for Christ's sake. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.